Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Donna Ladd and Ashton Pittman of the Mississippi Free Press. The Mississippi Free Press is a nonprofit media outlet for the state devoted to going beyond partisanship and publishing solutions journalism for the Magnolia State and all of its people. Donna has been a columnist, feature writer, investigative reporter, and editor. Among the highlights of her work is investigative reporting that led to a Klansman being convicted of a more than 40-year-old murder. She first co-founded the Jackson Free Press to cover that part of the state, and then the Mississippi Free Press to go bigger. Ashton's work shows up in my Twitter feed a lot, and for good reason. He covers the big stories in the state, some of which we'll discuss here. And he breaks a lot of news, often connected to the governor's office or racial injustice. Full disclosure, for a very brief period of time in the early 90s, I interned for Donna. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Donna, first of all, walk us through the path that led to the origin of uh, this organization. Well, as you know, we started the Jackson Free Press 19 years ago, and it serves the capital city of Mississippi. And it was kind of the original model of it was an alt-weekly print, you know, kind of the standard, although it was always very inclusive and kind of digging into history, which was kind of a difference between it and some of the other alt-weeklies even back then. But from the beginning, I really wanted to do a statewide publication to do the kinds of work that we're doing all over my home state. But that, that's hard, you know, with the business model of doing a statewide publication is very difficult because you, you know, you sell ads where you are and, you know, you, you, it's hard to cover the whole state, that kind of thing. Now we were named for a publication, a civil rights movement publication called the Mississippi Free Press from the 1960s that was done by a multiracial group of folks. And that's what the JFP was named after. So I always wanted to bring back, quote unquote, the Mississippi Free Press. And we've, we've, we've owned the URL for years, but just kind of waiting for the reason or the, the logic to do it, right? And so, and it really, the logic to do it kind of came out of necessity in the sense of what's going on in the journalism world with advertising, you know, the business model problems and and then I started paying attention to nonprofit media. I had some real problems with the idea of doing nonprofit media in the beginning, just because I didn't want to have to constantly fundraise, but that's life these days, right? And so it was really in just in recent years that I, I kind of, I and then Kimberly Griffin, who is also from Mississippi, and she's a black woman from Mississippi, I'm a white woman from Mississippi, we decided to get together she was already working with the Jacksonville Press as the associate publisher. She'd been there for 12 years. So we decided to get together and start the Mississippi Free Press. We planned to start it in 2020, which we did, but we didn't know that a pandemic was hitting. And so what happened to bring it full circle is that we went home to quarantine, you know, depending on which one of us, but around March 12th last year, just as the pandemic was coming to Mississippi, and then Ashton and I, who had been working together, we're kind of a good editor-writer team. We, what we, did, we were home and we said, you know, we need to be reporting on this pandemic as it's unfolding and not just in Jackson. We need to be comparing what's going on around the state, watching the safety precautions, 
And so we just said, and it's very Ashton and me, but we just said, let's publish. Our website wasn't ready. So my partner Todd threw up some sort of starter site, you know, that was our first one. And Ashton and I just started doing stuff. And that's how it was born. You know, we're about to turn one and it's been an incredible year. And it looks amazing. Ashton, explain how you got to this point in your career. Just give us a little bit of background on your uh, writing uh, career and the appeal of doing specifically the work that you do in covering the state. Well, I graduated from uh, the University of Southern Miss back in uh, 2014 with a journalism degree. I didn't take any jobs at any local newspapers at the time. And one of the reasons I didn't was because I was worried that I wouldn't be able to do the kind of work that I believed in and that I really thought this state needed because there's just a lot of topics that traditional news has shied away from in the state traditionally, especially when it comes to systemic racism. So actually for a while I blogged and I would do freelance work and I ended up writing for a magazine for a little while. It just so happened that back in 2018, Someone told me that the Jackson Free Press needed someone to freelance for them for one night. And I've been writing with Donna as my editor ever since. I started working at the Jackson Free Press. And then in early 2020, I left. And then in March 2020, we started, started MFP. So this is a story, the, the emails at the University of Mississippi, this is a story that has a lot of threads to it nearly 20 stories on this subject. Tell us about the work that your organization has done on it. Well, you know, when it started, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't expect the pandemic and we didn't expect this story to fall in our lap within three months, really a month, because we first started hearing about April, right, Ashen? And so, so basically there was, I got, you know, I got some emails that from some you know, what we now call whistleblowers at the University of Mississippi saying that there were these just viciously awful, sexist, racist, homophobic emails that were going back and forth between the dean of journalism and a a wealthy donor. And we were actually already working on something to do with the University of Mississippi that, to tease you, we haven't published yet. We've been working on it for so long. It's kind of a different tangentially related piece, but this dropped. And here's the thing, what I was reading that they sent struck me as so incredibly urgent to get out that there were these donors and grown men, very grown men, walking around the court square there taking pictures of young women particularly and, you know, calling them African hookers and just these horrible things. And so I, I got the emails and I reached out to Ashton and wanted him to take a look at it. And we were, and, and really that's kind of where it grew. We were paying attention because we thought other media would pick it up, but they, it, within the state that still hasn't happened to this day, but I'll kick it to Ashton and let him talk about what he discovered once he got in there. Right. And, and you know, that, that really gets to my point about, you know, why I didn't take a job at other media outlets when I graduated from Southern Miss is because this is just, this is the kind of story that needs to be told. And I am just shocked that we started publishing these stories in August. We've gotten some national 
attention for them, but not a single other paper in Mississippi or any other publication that I know of has gone into this aspect of this, of this story, has reported on these emails that she's talking about, these deeply racist emails. And, and it wasn't just about one donor and you know one dean. It, it showed a pattern with donors and with officials at the school of really kind of catering to the wishes of donors who expressed really racist views and oftentimes sexist views um, and their desire to kind of keep the, the, the lost cause element of the school thriving on campus. Because there's been a lot of anger over the removal of the Confederate monuments, over the change of the mascots, over all these things over the years on campus. So we thought this would, you know, this would get a lot of attention. And we know that other outlets had these emails, received these emails, but, but so far it's just been us. You know, one of the, one of the things that was, was a really big issue in reporting these stories is that a lot of people at the school, in the faculty, on the staff, just even, even students, you know, we had a lot of concerns over fears um, that people there had about witch hunts and about whistleblowers being targeted and about retaliation. So it was very hard to find people who would talk to us on the record. And we had to do a lot of work to really verify all of this information and to assure people that we would protect their identities. And, and the reason there are now 18 stories, part of the reason is that after our stories published, there was a whistleblower hunt that the university has gone on using its Title IX office to go after the whistleblowers, even accusing the whistleblowers themselves of targeting faculty of color. And they've also even involved the university police. Basically, the whistleblowers have been accused of harassing people because they've sent these emails, copies of these emails to different people in the school and sent copies of our articles and tried to raise these issues. And so it's just been an ongoing saga. I will say it hasn't done much to dissuade us from <laughs> the fact that the sources we had might have been onto something when they said they feared witch hunts and they didn't feel they could safely use their names for our stories. You know um, why? So, yeah. Yeah. Right. It's very obvious. Yeah. So, all right. So I want to segue from that to to this explain the challenge of covering the governor and dealing with the state legislature in the state well i think the you know the the challenge is uh, you know we have a, we have a republican supermajority at this at this point that wasn't always true from the beginning of the jackson free press but it certainly is for the mississippi free press and for a number of years now the access for, journal for journalists to state officials, particularly on the Republican side, but not only, I want to make that clear, has eroded. And we would argue that a lot of that is because journalists here give, give in too easily to certain things, right? Like they go along with, you know, well, we won't do interviews, just send us statements all the time, you know? or send us your questions, which we don't, you know, we have a policy of not providing questions in advance. And so it's, it becomes 
difficult, and especially ever since Governor Haley Barber was governor and really kind of shut down access unless you were, you know, clearly in their court, they're just not going to talk to you very much. Now, we are not access journalists, and we prove that on a regular basis. And obviously, what I mean by that is that we're not going to pull a story if you don't just or, or allow you to make us pull a story because you're not going to talk to us, right? We're going to go get the story anyway, which is, you know, it goes, we could also call ourselves beyond stenography, you know, we're going to go find the story. We're going to try to talk to you, but we're going to put the story out. And then if you want to talk to us, then you can. But I think one of the, the, and they get away with too much in Mississippi through our, you know, our existing kind of journalism infrastructure. And so part of our goal is to lead on changing the infrastructure statewide and encourage other journalists to give up some access because you're doing good reporting. You know, so we, this week with the Jackson Water situation, Nick Juden, who came over from the Jackson Free Press to work for the Mississippi Free Press, you know, he, he broke, broke is a weird word to say, but he did this story because we have this deep institutional knowledge about something that Delbert, Delbert Hoseman, our Lieutenant Governor said about the black leadership of Jackson. He basically, and of course Delbert Hoseman is white and he's Republican. And he, he made this comment that we, we hadn't tried to do anything on our water since Kane Ditto. That's the last white mayor of Jackson from the nineties. And so it's this, Again, I can't speak to his intent, but it's this coded racist kind of thing that we hear all the time from the state legislature and the leaders of the state because they just operate openly with this kind of race politics without getting called out on it. Nick knew what he was hearing. I certainly knew what I was hearing. So he put out a story that's now leading and getting its turn. It's a different conversation now than it was before he took off put out that story and some other media kind of scrambling to catch up, which is great. We need, we need more media on it. But so my point is Hoseman likes Nick just fine. He's done interviews with him, which is kind of unusual for us, you know, these days to get good interviews with top Republican leaders. He may stop doing interviews for a while. You know, I hope not because I think there's more to say, but we're not going to not do that story right there and call that out because we knew what was being said in order to keep that access. And that's, that's I think Ashton could attest to this. That's the difference between us and, and traditional Mississippi media, whether they're older outlets or newer, is that we just, you know, we'll give up access to, to tell the truth. Right, that's, that's very true. You know, one of, one of the things that I think that has happened with our current governor, uh, Governor Reeves, that I don't recall happening with Governor Bryant is that he does hold press conferences where you can ask questions as a member of the press. There's still a lot that could be improved, but that's something that especially Nick Juden is very good at is, is you know, talking to politicians when they actually hold press conferences, asking them important questions and then following up. I think we 
we have a lot of we have a lot of cases where I think journalists will ask a, a politician a question and then get a answer that's either really a strange answer or that you know like Donna was talking about includes some kind of coded message or is just a non-answer and and journalists will go and and there's not all journalists in Mississippi do this I'm I mean I'm not just saying that you know you have to work for the Mississippi Free Press to to not do this but a lot of journalists will will just get that answer and put it in their story and not follow up and say but wait you know this this doesn't make a lot of sense or 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 what are you know what are you implying with this so I think I think you don't just need the access to be able to ask someone questions and I think someone noted that a Vox journalist discovered that you never ask <laughs> yes or no questions to Tate Reeves this past week. It's not just about having that access. It's about knowing how to, to use it to maximal effect, to actually get real answers. Apparently, the Vox reporter talked for a paragraph and then Tate Reeves said yes or no, whichever, and turned it off. <laughs> I teach constantly never to ask a yes or no question. So I was kind of preening over that. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, how, I told y'all. How do you decide what stories to cover? Oh, well, I, you know, we're, we're still fairly small. And, it, you know, I, I think a lot of it's instinct, but it's also, we haven't talked this out. I mean, Ashton and I are really, I think, mentally in sync on these things, but psychically maybe. The stories that we want to tell are stories, A, that other people won't. I mean, that's a high, I would call that high on the list. So the UM email story, nobody else was doing it, you know, so we did it but also stories that require historic context to tell them right. And so the UM's email story didn't just talk about, as you know, didn't just talk about the, these emails. It gave all this contextual history, not just the 1960s, but when the donor was actually at college, which is several decades later and some of the things going on. We're fearless in, in this state when it comes to telling the truth. Because, you know, Ashton and I and Kimberly and our whole startup team is actually from Mississippi. And we're all sick of this idea that they lie to us about our own history, especially race history. And so we, we, we believe strongly that the only way to tell, you know, to, to tell stories in a way that make, that make sense and, and lead to solutions is that if you dig out the causes, no matter how difficult they are. And so if there's, if there's context that's needed, you know, we love that story, especially if it's a story we look at and Ashton and I particularly would say, nobody else is going to tell this story right because they're afraid of the context. You know, there was an example, you know, a couple years ago, whatever it was, of another outlet that I won't name, but did a story about, Governor Phil Bryant, you know, winning an award from the Sons of Confederate Veterans, which is, that's, that's bad enough. But the award's named for our secessionist governor, slaveholder, just this terrible, terrible person. And somehow there's a whole story about him getting the award that never mentioned slavery. And so that's the kind of thing that we're, we're just not going to do a story that way. We're going to embed all of those things. Well, I would say we... Aside from you know contextual history, I think we really like stories that get into get into public concern, that deal with public records and documents, and that allow us to really get into the, the details 
of, of things that are happening in a way that provides more transparency for people in this state, such as last year in May, the governor had this restart Mississippi commission in May to basically restart the state coming out of the coronavirus supposedly crisis last May. As you see, we're still not out of that, but we were curious about who was on this restart Mississippi commission that was basically advising him on how to reopen the state, reopen all the businesses and, and just get everything moving again long before we had that mask man. And so we looked into it and one of the things, one, one big issue that we have is, is that Mississippi, if you want to look and see campaign finance filings, you basically have to go to the secretary of state's website. You can't just search like a database, you have to get scanned, print. Okay, so basically <laughs> they print out hundreds of pages of their filings and then somebody scans each page and puts it into a PDF where half the pages are sideways. And you have to go through those pay those scanned, terrible scans <laughs> of those PDFs to find whatever you're looking for. And yes, it's on purpose. So I'll, I'll just know. say that on, on the record. So, so like, if I wanna know how much some rich person gave to Tate Reeves. I can't just go search for that person's name. I can because they actually do have a database tool, but nobody actually has to input that information to that database. So you're not going to get the, you're not really going to get a complete picture, if anything. So what I ended up doing was I ended up getting every single filing Tate Reeves had for the past, however many years he's been in office. Well, since 2008, I think he's been in office longer than that, but for the relevance of what we were doing, it went back to 2008. And I got every single one of those PDFs, and this took a few days, and I ran them through a program that basically made all those PDFs searchable. I think I ended up with sev several thousand pages. And so I just went through and I searched for each of the members of the Restart Mississippi Commission to find out, you know, what had they given to Tate Reeves. And and the businesses they worked for, or the PACs they worked for. But I think we came up with something like more than $800,000. And there were only one or two members that he had appointed, and I think it was like 16, 17 people who weren't significant donors or whose businesses or PACs or whatever it was, weren't significant donors. So that was a story that none of the Restart Mississippi Commission stories anybody else had done because, I mean, it takes a lot of time and we, you know, those tools aren't readily available. We did end up having someone from the Clarion Ledger reach out to us though. And we did share the PDF we had because they wanted to use that for a different story to search through Tate Reeves filings. So, so that's just one example. I think the fact that we're willing to go the extra mile to try to get information out there that makes the state and our leadership more transparent if they won't do it themselves. Let me add one don't. quick one that I, I, I think is urgent to say, systemic connections. That's our other thing. That's our obsession. I mean, you could say if you were here in my house, you'd say I have whiteboards everywhere about the way, you know, murder boards, I call them, but how things are connected. Because we really do know that we don't solve anything from poverty to crime to corruption or anything else without constantly, it's a chess game almost. I mean, you're thinking about how everything is connected and so that your, your reporting is reflecting that. 
And to me, that's missing way too often in a lot of kind of traditional journalism. Although I think a lot of people are scrambling to figure it out now, which is good. But yeah, so systemic, systemic connections are very, very important. Okay, we've reached the portion of our show in which our intern, Emmy Lederman, takes over and handles the advice segment. We like to make sure that we give plenty of uh, advice. We get plenty of advice from our guests. So Emmy, take it away. Hello. So I'm wondering from either of you, what gaps in reporting and in journalism should young students and people entering the workforce look to fill? Well, I can go first real quick. I, I, I think it builds on what I was just saying. You know, think, think deeply about how things are connected. Always ask. And, and so it can be, it's a gap in the sense, the way I'm answering it, it's, it's a gap within all of our subjects so often to think about how to, why does that problem exist? Who did what when? What legacies did that create? And then I'm a big fan of solutions journalism, but you can't really get to the solutions unless you know the causes, right? And so that's what I, I want to see. It's like, and, and obviously that applies to race and racism misogyny, all sorts of things. But to, to learn to do that, like the people that I meet who I want to work with are people who think very systemically. And we've been doing this on you know, my other publication for 20 years almost. And I'm really happy to see the journalism start to come to a place where we've already been here in the middle of Mississippi. You know, people are noticing now more nationally, you know, kind of the way we do things, which is great, but they're noticing it in part because they're kind of looking to do some of these things, right? So, so that's what I would say. I would also say a specific subject area that I have really, higher ed, a lot high, it, for a subject area, a lot hides in higher ed. We're really learning that. I'm also working on a separate piece that's not in Mississippi that involves higher ed, where I've learned a lot of things. And so I think that that's an area where a lot of things hide. I mean, I, I totally agree with what, what you said. And, and you know, on systemic connection, you know, ask who, who benefits? Because I think a lot, of, a lot of the practice in the past has been to kind of take PR statements and then rewrite them into well, essentially more PR, but that doesn't cast a critical eye towards, you know, this might sound good, but who's benefiting from it? Whose expense is this coming at? And, and what are the questions I should be asking? What are, what are, what's the information they're not giving us on this? What are, what are my questions I have about this? And I, I think that there was, there was so many times over the years that I would read a news story and I would have questions and I'd be like, hmm, I wonder about that. And then there would never be an answer. And I was just used to that. I, I think one of the things that I love about working with Donna is that she has always encouraged me to, she, she would always put little notes in my stories. Yeah, but what about this? And I'd be like, yeah, well, I thought that too, but that information wasn't available and no we'll one else ever asked <laughs> Right, right. So now, so now, you know, I end up with really long stories, but it's because I, you know, if I have a question, I think it should be answered. You know, another thing I would say to answer your question is that I think upcoming journalists really need to not go into this, especially if they're interested in reporting on politics, not go into this wanting to be a quote politics reporter, yeah. you know, wanting to 
report on the horse race of campaigns, the red versus blue, all of that. But instead, they should see themselves as their job primarily as you know, protectors of democracy, reporting on democracy, focusing on not the politicians, but on the voters, and also on voting, on you know, voter disenfranchisement issues, on making sure that people's voices can be heard. Instead of focusing on a select few people who you know, probably have various reasons, some good, some bad, for being there, and who want this to be basically a team sport, because it's, it's not a sport, it's, it's people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a really big one that I, I think, and I hope upcoming journalists reorient their views away from that kind of red versus blue reporting on politics and more towards democracy. When writing about such sensitive topics, um, such as you know, social justice and race, um, how do you kind of account for your own bias and what you may be trying to prove in a story and make sure that all sides are fairly and adequately uh, represented? You know, I believe that you, when you're talking about something like systemic injustice, you know, the first thing you do is you prioritize the views of those who are um, experiencing this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone who is a victim of racism, their viewpoint matters a lot more than, and is far more relevant to a story than someone who is not a victim of that injustice. You know, they're the ones, they're the experts on what it's like to experience that injustice. So, you know, I don't believe you do a kind of both sides thing where you take people who are victims of injustice and people who don't really believe it exists. And, you know, you kind of say, well, we're going to balance it out by having these two quote sides represented. Obviously with any story, you want to make sure that, um, you know, that you're listening to multiple voices um, because there are going to be people even within one group or community because people are individuals who have had different experiences and different views. But, I, but I, it's important to, to listen to the people who are affected. And it's important to get expert voices, people who have been dealing with these issues um, and who are intimately familiar with them, um, you know, getting their input. You know, you look for people who are actually trying to find solutions and you talk to those people. And I, I think that that's how you deal with issues, stories, issues of injustice, because that, that, is, that is where you find the balance. It's talking to the people who, who understand it and who are experts and who are trying to, to solve things. You know, it, there wouldn't be any balance if I went to someone who didn't have any experience with those things and who hadn't, you know, wasn't interested in finding solutions or changing things and just, you know, filled half the story with them and half the story with other people. Uh, so I think it's, you always want to step back and ask yourself, are my personal views seeping into my coverage? But I don't believe you do that by trying to include, um, trying to include on an equal basis, the voices of people who simply don't have the information relevant to the, to the issue. That's right. That's right. We ran into a little bit of that in the UM emails story after the initial three stories, there was some people, worse than people in the journalism school who were trying to discredit it because we didn't go through and talk to every single one of them who had nothing to do with it, right? Or at least we had no evidence that they did. Something right. like that. It's like you, it's not a checking off 
you know, just we're going to talk to this person and then balance it with that person thing. It's talking to the people, um, I think, who are really relevant to the story. But then the bigger picture, I was thinking while Ashton was talking, is to, you have to constantly ground yourself. I mean, we're both white. Our readership of the Jackson Free Press has long been majority black. We're in a majority black city. But it's not just because we're here in a majority black city. It's because of the kinds of coverage we do and that we deeply listen. You know, we're often the only white people in the room. My partner in this, Kimberly Griffin, is, you know, we have these conversations about the coverage, not for her to tell us what to do, but for her to listen to what we're doing and give other perspectives. Our boards are so, you know, that we're, you know, majority women and majority black women or women of color, and they give us feedback on things. We ask for feedback. Now, it doesn't mean every single person is going to agree with, with what you do if one person criticizes it, but you have this whole uh, network of people who say you're doing the exact right thing, who are people of color who are, are whatever it is, the people who uh, you are writing about, you know, if it's a group or whatever, you know, who are saying you're exactly on the right track, ask this, look at that. And that's all about building the right kind of network and to get to know people and to be in the rooms and to listen deeply. And um, that kind of segues nicely into my next question. I was going to ask, the field of journalism is historically and currently lacks diversity. So I'm wondering, what can we do as white reporters to begin to change that? I, I've kind of worked in this for a long time. You know, I used to be the diversity chair of a of a national journalism organization that had no people of color on the board, don't get me started. I mean, it, it, the difficulties then of trying to have these kinds of conversations. But, you know, it, it's like with us, we, and when I say us, I, don't, I mean, like at the Jackson Free Press for 20 years, we've just been in the rooms. We've gotten to know people. We, we, we get out of our own comfort zones. We go and we listen and we ask questions. And we say, what's not being covered in the city or in your community? I've done that for 20 years. I mean, I'm in Jackson. I mean, if I walk into a room full of, that's all white people, I start getting jittery because I'm just not used to or anywhere, frankly, but I'm not used to that. You know, I live, I live in a world and I, you know, I'm one of those people who don't love the phrase diversity anymore, but I'm not criticizing it. It's just, it's inadequate, right? Because it's, you can't, you can't just have fake diversity either. You, you have to, you know, in journalism, you know, I used to talk to people about the different legs of the stool. People were obsessed just with hiring. And it's like, well, you're going to hire people. Some people are going to leave no matter what their race or background is. So it's about so much more than hiring. You know, it's about, yes, hiring. Uh, you know, our startup team was half white and half black. You know, it's like, well, this is the kind, we're very cognizant and deliberate, but alone, if we're not also studying systemic racism, if we're not going, being parts of race dialogues, and if we're not studying history, you know, and understanding things so that we can draw perspective, then that's on us as individuals. 
if we don't know, like New York City, you know, where I've spent a lot of time, how many people don't know the race history of New York City? So many of the, you know, of the things, I go there and I seek out things just like I do here, but it's like, how many people, you know, haven't visited parts of the city or have, don't know what Weeksville was or whatever the case might be, Seneca Village in Central Park. So that's the thing, you've got to dig in and then, and then you have to, you know, you just have to keep, you just have to be fully interested. You know, I, I don't even know how else, to, how else to say it in full compassion. It's like, it's just, we, we have to expand what we learn. We have to expand our circles. We have to learn to listen to people who aren't like us. And we, we need to be curious about their history. And to me, it's like if journalists would just get out of their bubble. I mean, they're, you know, white bubbles are boring, A. But then it's just like, it, just get out of them, you know, do, be curious. Yeah, well, I, I think one thing, you know, that we can, we can do is, is to intentionally make sure we're making space uh, for other voices, other journalists. Don, one thing Donna's tweeted that I kind of internalized, and she's talked about this and tweeted about it, is that she's tired of seeing panels at universities of nothing but um, white men or, you know, all white panels. So, you know, a few weeks ago, a former political science professor of mine asked if I would be on a panel with, with some others, uh, including the Secretary of State, to talk about voting rights issues in Mississippi. And so the first thing I thought of was, you know, what Donna has said, uh, about these all white panels. And I kind of, you know, I kind of uh, text her about it and told her about it. And I was like, I feel like maybe I should ask him, you know, am I gonna be um, one of just another, you know, five white guys on the panel, uh, you know, how diverse is it? And she was like, yeah, yeah, please, you know, do that. So, so I did. Turns out I'm apparently, aside from the Secretary of State, the only white guy they've invited, but, you know, I, I'm really glad she pointed that out because that's something I might not have thought about. Um, and I'm trying to be more conscious in other situations too, not just, you know, panels at universities, but other situations too, because I am a, a gay man. So, you know, that's my quote unquote diversity uh, that I can bring. And I really don't like that term either. I, I, don't, I don't know exactly why I don't like it. <laughs> But I also kind of just have gotten tired of hearing the term. Um, and maybe it's because I hear so many PR people use it. But I'm still like, I still have to remember that I'm also a white man. And, you know, I can go, out, go throughout my day without people knowing that I'm gay. But, but I'm a white man. So I get privileges that other people don't. And, you know, people in some cases are going to, just because I'm white and male, take me more seriously um, automatically than they would if I were a woman. Um, or if I were a reporter of color. And so I think just being conscious about that um, and being aware of you know, where you fit in and of how other people are being treated and whether they get a seat at the table, I think that's, that's really important. Conscientiousness, certainly. All right, let's end on this uh, that we ask everyone to close the show with. Uh, what journalism organization that you're not affiliated with would you like to salute? Well, yeah, I mean, Dame popped to mind um, immediately because it's, you know, 
you've got the 19th out there now, which is a women's focused nonprofit and they do some good stuff, yep. you know, but they've got a lot of money and, uh, and, and, and Dame is a woman's publication, uh, nonprofit online that's been out there for a while and they don't have a lot of money. And so it's like us, you know, we are, we're, we're scrappy and, you know, so far rely mostly on reader contributions, which is actually have lots of them. But um, so, and then Dane publishes some really good stuff and, and they're edgy and they, you know, like they published a piece that I wrote about Ronan Farrow's book and some of the things that, you know, kind of came out of that, that, you know, I don't, I don't know that a lot of other publications are willing to do. Um, so yeah, I would, I would definitely look up Dame Magazine. A lot of uh, really smart women writing there, very diverse, very quote unquote, right? Um, very uh, digging in deep, kind of like we try to do. All right, um, Donna, Ashton, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, best of luck with the Mississippi Free Press. Thank you, thank and you. thanks so much for having us. March is Women's History Month, and the Journalism Salute would like to pay tribute to Raquel Rutledge, who earned a Pulitzer Prize in 2010 for her investigative watchdog reporting at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Through her series, Cashing In on Kids, Rutledge exposed the Wisconsin Shares Child Care Program's history of handing out licenses to people with serious convictions and identified at least 16 child care centers that were closely linked to drug operations. The investigation, which started with an anonymous tip from a reader, led to a child care fraud crackdown that saved $45 million in taxpayer dollars in 2010 alone. Rutledge shared that the reaction from authorities has been, quote, interesting as they only seem to take action when we are ready to publish a story. I'm Emmy Lederman. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All right, so let's go inside the reporter's notebook. Emmy Lederman is taking comprehensive notes over the course of the interview. You heard her ask some questions as well. Emmy, what, were your, uh, what was your biggest takeaway from this conversation with them? Something that really struck me was what Ashton mentioned about after she graduated from college, she had a few opportunities to maybe um, do some reporting locally in Mississippi, but he knew that the, it wouldn't be the type of journalism that he was really um, energized to do, you know, covering systemic racism, covering the type of topics that really needed attention that typically journalists in Mississippi would shy away from. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that he, after college, we're all so set on kind of getting our first job and, and getting this professional experience right away. But he took a step back, did some blogging, and decided that he would wait until a better opportunity came about. So what they talk about in terms of um, access journalism is interesting as well, because they you know, sometimes not all of the resources are going to be handed to you and you kind of have to scout it out um, and scout out, you know, what types of um, sources that you need. And, you know, it, it's not going to always be easy to tell certain stories. 
And both Ashton and Donna talked about how you have to give up some access because you are doing the good reporting and you're understanding that people might not want to talk to you, but you have to find different ways, um, different angles to hit in terms of getting that information. And it might not always be easy, but there are so many different routes you can take. And um, if you don't have access, the question should be, how can you get access? As an aspiring reporter yourself, what traits did the two of them have that you kind of looked up to? They're just total go-getters. They don't really take no for an answer, but at the same time, they hold the ethics of journalism very highly in, in all of their reporting. They're interested in stepping away from you know their bias as um, white journalists and shining a light on um, topics that they find important and using their own privilege to do so. And that's something that's really inspiring and, and energizing for me is to see people who don't want to take the easy way out and are more intrigued to tell a story when other people are telling them no. And the fact that they were able to start the Mississippi Free Press in the middle of a pandemic, certainly very impressive, right? Right. And the fact that they didn't even have full website, their, their website wasn't completed when they decided that they wanted to publish it, but they were very nimble and just said, we're going to use this temporary website and it's not going to be perfect, but it's what Mississippi needs right now, which is another interesting part of what they did. We close Emmy Lederman's Reporter's Notebook and we will bring it back uh, in future episodes. Thank you, Emmy. Thank you. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism department at Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. To have everyone come back to celebrate his contributions to all of our careers was just, you know, such a wonderful testament to, to his impact. With so many students earning their diplomas, graduations can sometimes feel pretty impersonal. But at the College of New Jersey's Journalism Department graduation, Christina Fiore remembers that Cole recognized the individual interests of every person who walked across that stage. Fiore, who is now the Director of Enterprise and Investigative Reporting at MedPage Today, received a shout out from Cole for her interest in science writing, which has stuck with her ever since. I think that was the great thing about Bob Cole is that he was so focused on each individual student and, you know, you, every single one of the students, and he cared about their careers and their path. I'm Emmy Lederman, College of New Jersey, Class of 2021. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.